Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. It's been a while since we spoke to you. Last time uh, we recorded was the 7th of July and it's Monday, the 22nd of September and ITRAX crossover is about 320 basis points uh, today. Uh, much has happened since we last spoke to you and um, much has changed in markets and in underlying economies. So today's going to be a really interesting session. But in our last episode entitled Giving Credit to Decarbonization, we focused on how climate change risk is being approached by investors, both in the corporate credit land and in the real estate sectors. Let's look back now at what our lead engager in fixed income, Aaron Hay, had to say about working with companies to accelerate their carbon reduction plans. And then when it comes to companies, um, I want to see science-based targets with 2030 uh, being the scope, not 2050, because we need to keep in mind the, the decision-making framework and the people that are going to be around to deliver on a 2050 target are not the people in charge today. However, the people who are in charge today need to start taking action now if they want to hit a 2025 or, or a 2030 science-based target. And I would like to see those targets validated by a third party so that uh, we know that they are robust and meaningful uh, from a view that isn't just from, from that management team. It was great having Aaron on talking about what we do there. And we welcome such a progressive and intense focus on carbon reduction. And we'll continue to engage with our companies to follow these leaders, but also to help the laggards to make improvements, both in terms of their activities, but also in terms of their reporting. Now, about a year ago, I sat down with Andre Kuznetsov, our senior credit portfolio manager, to look at market events through the rearview mirror a year ago. Uh, at that time, we looked back at what happened in the sell-off in the last quarter of 2018 and the rebound that we saw, which was almost perfectly symmetrical in the first quarter of 2019. Um, we had lots of really good feedback on that. We had lots of data within the discussion and Andre was, as usual, um, full of valuable insights for market participants. Now um, we're one year later and we are going to do something fairly similar. Uh, when we sat down in September of 2019, Andre was talking about his view that we'd see many bouts of volatility, but that there would be strong investor appetite for credit as an asset class. Um, but at that time, nobody could have predicted what happened. As we ran through the end of 2019 and entered into 2020, many of us were looking at markets and saying they were slightly overblown and irrationally exuberant, but no one really could have seen this exogenous event. So we'll spend much of this two-part Delta uh, talking about what's happened over the last 12 months. And then the second part, we'll spend talking about what's going to happen from here forward. Um, probably as much time spent on what happened uh, in the last 12 months as what's going to happen from here, uh, what's going to happen from here will be pretty challenging, I would suggest, uh, because of some of the um, intervention that we've seen from central banks. So without further ado, let's start part one and dive in and ask Andre the first question. Um, one of the things that we hold true to in this podcast is that we always try to express conviction. So let's be brutally honest from the outset of the episode. Looking back over the past year, what did what did we get wrong, Andre? And sorry to start with such a such a challenging question, but what did we get wrong? 
Thank you, Jaco. I think uh, it's, a, it's a great question to start with and indeed not the easiest one, but I think it's always important to deconstruct your performance and think what you could have done better, particularly in times like this. And I'll try not to use the word unprecedented uh, in this podcast, but I think you can use that word to describe a lot of things that have happened over the past 12 months. We've discussed a little bit our view on cyclicality premium in the last episodes. And given the strong recovery in macro post our podcast last time, we've increased the cyclicality premium within our portfolios at the turn of the year. And obviously that turned out to be quite painful in the first half of the year. The dual shock of COVID-19 and oil really pressured that part of the market. We've also discussed how the, the changes in the behavior of metals and mining and energy companies since the commodities volatility period of 2015 and 16 uh, has taken a turn for better and with more companies focusing on cash flow generation versus growth. And that's why we've seen less M&A and less uh, CapEx. And it certainly turned out to be true in metals and mining, where the supply side really helped, and it turned out to be the right call. At the same time, within energy sector, I think what we have discussed was not really enough to compensate for the oil drawdown that we have experienced in the first quarter of this year. And if you remember, at some point with front-end oil futures trading in almost as low as minus 40, it was indeed a challenging environment that was very hard uh, to be prepared for. Also, from just looking from PL's perspective, one might say that we've made a mistake by sticking to the process and keeping the shape of the portfolio the same in terms of its makeup. If you remember, the liquidity was quite bad in the first half of the year, and majority of the market focused on selling the most liquid things, not what they really wanted to sell, i.e. their lower quality part of the market. And you can see that in signals like the pressure in the commercial paper market, the pressure in the front end of the investment grade curves, and for example, the underperformance of uh, higher quality versus lower quality, which can be both seen in investment grade versus high yield, but also the higher part of high yield versus the lower uh, seg lower rated segment of high yield. And I urge everyone to look at our uh, piece that we published that during that period called uh, Coronavirus Crisis in Five Charts that, that charts that goes into detail on all the things that have happened. And We've taken some PL loss in hindsight, which maybe was not uh, the perfect thing to do given the recovery since then. But I think it was the right thing to do because at that point, I think we were a couple of weeks away from more gating in a credit fund community. We've had only a few cases of gating in Europe for credit funds. But the help of central banks came at the right point in time and bailed out a lot of, the, of that lower quality segment of the market.
just before you go on there, Andre, I think just like to pick up on that. Um, there were days in which things were were pretty awful. Um, liquidity was was quite stretched, and volatility was uh, was very very high. Uh, back to what we saw in the third quarter of two thousand and eleven. Uh, even you know people making reference to what happened within the financial crisis. But one of the notable things was the lack of fund unwinds that we saw. How close do you feel we got to that occurring in a really precipitous fashion? I think we were basically a couple of weeks away. If that recovery around 24th of March March did not materialize, if we went into April in, in a, when high yield was still at 1100, around 1100 basis points, I think we would have seen a, a lot more uh, in terms of funds having issues dealing with outflows. because Partly because that move in, from central bank side also gave impetus um, for many more strategic uh, asset allocators within multi-asset community to increase allocation to the asset class uh, at that during that time. And you cannot really see that in public flows data, but based on what we have seen from our institutional clients and from peers, I think there was definitely uh, the case. Yeah, it, my sense is that the, we were looking for capitulation and there was definitely a couple of days that where we saw pockets of capitulation, but they tended to be quite uh, constrained to the sectors that you've highlighted and some of the approaches that were that were slightly differentiated from the norm. But the broader base capitulation within our asset class didn't quite occur. And I think you're right, maybe one or even two weeks more of the, the kind of levels that we were seeing at the at the trough would have been enough for us to see very large scale capitulation. Um, obviously, central bank activity was very much targeted towards fixed income as an asset class and therefore provided good respite and even cash to some of those people that were that were struggling most. Sorry, I, I, I stopped you uh, from going through and, and talking about all the other things that we got wrong. Where did we get to? Was there anything else that I think uh, that you got that you think we got wrong? Yes, just continue on that topic of recovery. I think if we turn to fundamentals, uh, if if I go back to the investment committees we had during that period, there was a lot more of scenario analysis and liquidity analysis. And for the first time in my career, we were discussing companies in terms of how many months of leeway they actually have in terms of their uh, cash flow uh, generation and in terms of liquidity they had of balance sheet. So it was like company A, I think we think has three months if things don't change. And then this one has six months and this one maybe has only one month. And it was a challenging period. And we had to take a view in some cases uh, where we saw a liquidity not sufficient if we didn't see that bounce from um, from maybe cases in, in, the, in China and then Italy after that an improvement somewhat on the fundamental front, we would have had many more defaults. And again, to keep portfolios uh, in the right risk profile, we've had to trim some positions, for example, some consumer names in uh, Italy, even some oil and gas names in the US, 
But again, some of those names have recovered, but also some of those names are never recovered and they are still uh, at the lows uh, for the year. So I think, again, thinking about the future in terms of scenario analysis and thinking about the different outcomes that the world that could have uh, come uh, to fruition uh, this year, it was the right uh, decision. Got it. Um, yeah, I think one observation I would have about the way in which analysis had to change within that period was that traditional models that are based on EBITDA and cash flow um, kind of had to be thrown out of the window. Um, none of these companies were making any money. They were all in lockdown. And without, without government or central bank intervention, they would have all struggled over a period of time. And therefore, it was really a, a case of trying to find within the universe those that had the best potential to survive for long enough for that activity to filter through and, and support them. And, you know, as much as the first question is about what we got wrong, I think actually the ability to switch from a traditional model approach in our credit analysis to a very, very different approach. You know, how many of these will survive? Who will survive? Who will the survivors be? Uh, what is the universe going to look like after this um, uh, burning of, of the, the week? Um, I think actually we did a, a reasonable job of that. I think if I could highlight one other area that I think maybe was challenging for us is that we took that cyclicality premium approach and then felt like by being conservative within cyclicals, by which we meant um, lower leverage, lower rating, that afforded us the ability to be somewhat overweight because we were being conservative within those sectors. Um, how we were overweight, maybe we were slightly uh, longer in terms of credit duration, so buying bonds with a, with a slightly longer maturity. And that may have lulled us into a slightly false sense of security that there were ways in which you could invest in these assets and be immune from major drawdowns. And I think that we had to really you know, examine that as we went through the depths of the crisis. Any reflections on that, Andre? Absolutely, Jacko. I think, and that's one of the things I've definitely picked up uh, this year uh, in terms of lessons learned. There's different type of portfolio construction uh, for scenarios where on one side you have usually in a typical recession you have EBITDA declines of 10 20 30 percent and they happen over six months 12 months 18 months and on the other side what we had this year is pretty much EBITDA going from 100 percent in some cases to zero overnight, or maybe 30% of that normalized level. And you need to construct your portfolio slightly differently. And also going for higher quality within that cyclicality premium that you've alluded to uh, does not work uh, particularly uh, well in this type of scenarios. And where it's also important, I think, is when you're running a long short uh, type of portfolios or portfolios that also utilize different tools for downside protection. And one way to do that is to do relative value trades between different parts of the capital structure, combining bonds and CDS uh, by being maybe buying insurance at the lower uh, part of the capital structure and going along with the senior. 
And the other way is to use maybe more options, for example, for downside protection. And what we've learned is that options uh, work much better in a scenario where your uh, EBITDA goes from 100 to zero than the uh, uh, trades that rely on that uh, slow, relatively slower uh, decline in EBITDA. And I think you need to have a combination of both uh, to optimize the portfolios, but this is definitely something that we have reflected on quite a bit this year. Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the observations I'd make about the consistency of really really major crises is that often those nuanced relative value uh, ratio or or mean reversion type trades fail to give you the degree of protection that you're hoping for, and sometimes the the more simplistic, slightly less they feel like slightly less professional because they're that you know you haven't put as much thought in them. Um, sometimes those trades do really well, very much like you know thinking about house insurance. You know you you feel like you know, it doesn't feel like you need it. Uh, of course your house isn't going to burn down, but when the really really cataclysmic event occurs, those options really can kick in for us. Moving on slightly from mistakes because you know everyone makes mistakes and it is natural for us to um, make mistakes. What did we do through the crisis to avoid panicking? Because panic is is really, really dangerous within those crises. And rather than panic, take action. Give us some examples of what we did to mitigate the uh, the errors that we made going in. I think this year is interesting from many angles, but one of them is that you had to basically re-underwrite your whole portfolio in a very short period of time which means there's a lot of uh, pressure for the analyst team. And that means you need to discuss priorities with analysts basically daily. On daily basis, adjust what's most important to spend time on. And it's like your overnight, your portfolio has turned from performing credit into distressed debt portfolio, where, as we have discussed earlier, a lot more focus on scenario analysis and liquidity. So the things like length length of the lockdowns, uh, when will oil uh, market rebalance, all those things have to come into play. And then the harder thinking starts. What about the normalized cash flow post COVID-19? And it's it was hard at the start to really understand how the consumer behaviors will change, how the business models will change. But after having a few earning season seasons, I think analysts have a good grasp on uh, what the new cash flow generation potential of many businesses uh, is um, or will be uh, in in the coming years, and I think uh, that's very important to continue to spend time on. And from the portfolio management side, I would say that trading was a lot more hands on working very closely with the trading desk. A lot more was done on voice. Um, you had to be plugged into where the pockets of liquidity are and having an experienced tra- trader uh, during that time was, I think, uh, essential. Sorry, Andre, I was just going to reinforce that point. I think the the theme within fixed income trading over the last five years has been disturbing for those of us who are slightly older uh, and have been through crises, which is that 
Um, the light touch approach to trading, more systematic trading has been, you know, pressed and pressed and pressed in order for people to manage down costs. And here, you know, this is a differentiator between the way in which we, uh, uh, Federated Hermes, work and, and some of our competitors. And this is some, something that you hear Saka and Johan talk about regularly, Saka, our CEO, and Johan, our head of investments, talk about regularly, which is that if you are to undertake this high active share approach, that necessarily probably goes hand in hand with a high touch trading approach. And that high touch trading approach was definitely, definitely brought to bear at the depths of the crisis. Absolutely. And I think the volatility uh, was definitely quite uh, high <laughs> during that period. And what that translates into in terms of portfolio management is you need to be more careful with limits across the portfolios that you manage. You need to leave a bit more headroom. You need to be a little bit more liquid and use the most liquid part of the credit spectrum, which are the index and options, a little bit more in times when liquidity is scarce. Yep. So both in terms of your analyst interaction and in terms of your portfolio management and trading interaction, it feels like the human interaction has been critical to doing well through this crisis and out of this crisis. Definitely strikes me that the human interaction between yourself and, and credit analysts, yourself and, and traders has been even higher than in normal circumstances. And that must have been incredibly tough, given that we've all been working from home, working remotely. How have you made that work? Yes, indeed, Jaco. I think it was a challenge uh, for all of us. It's like, I would describe it as a battle, maybe more like a sports battle that you feel good at the end of, maybe like a marathon or something, where every day you have heightened volatility. You need to be more hands-on with trading. You need to be in constant dialogues uh, with analysts, different analysts in terms of the pipeline. You have to attend investment committees almost uh, on daily basis. And at the same time, a lot of us at home, we had kids, we had to homeschool during lunch and still help our partners. So I think it was an interesting experience. And I think Federated Hermes were quite well set up for working from home because of the support to, for agile working and flexible working even before. So we had the technology, we had the capability, and I think we planned actually way ahead of the lockdowns actually taking place here in London. So I'm quite um, happy with the experience we've had, keeping in mind, obviously, that um, COVID-19 is, is a disaster. Yeah, so I've got uh, two more questions for you. Um... First is, is a very general and open question. Which market developments surprised you the most? And I guess that within that, I'd also like you to touch on you know, how different sub-asset classes behave versus each other. But I'll, I'll leave it nice and open so that you can take it in the direction you want. Which, which of those developments that we saw through the crisis surprised you most? Well, I think uh, undoubtedly the liquidity stands as number one uh, on that list. And to put things in perspective, we were in a very good place uh, in mid-February. Market macro data was improving. There was strong demand for credit. 
global credit was 10 bips away from decade tights. Um, so that's pretty close. Uh, high, there was negative yield in high yield. And if you remember that time, we were thinking whether high yield is now going to be called high spread or actually high yield. Uh, and Greece uh, managed to print inside 2% for 15 years. So it looked like everything was great and set up for a bit of volatility. And then we get hit by the dual shock and the uncertainty of working from home and the world had to improvise. And when you have to improvise, things don't go down uh, perfectly. And liquidity, we've already discussed how liquidity was not particularly good. But I think where you can see that in the market is in, in ETFs, where even investment grade ETFs traded with significant discount to NAV, which means that the prices you transact at in the market are much lower than what you see on screens where they are marked maybe from the index providers. And another interesting element there is the fact that even the treasuries market froze at some point in March. It's one of the most liquid markets in the world. And there's a lot of electronic and algo trading there. And the volatility was just way too high for that. And at the same time, the market was thinking about uh, the implications of all the additional fiscal stimulus that is being announced and whether that all will be financed by that and how much of that will be monetized by central banks. And you can see how gold and dollar um, were the other two options for investors uh, looking to hedge. Other things, I think the scale of central bank and government support was quite impressive. Um, we are, once again, um, we have a, we realized that markets are controlling what central banks are doing. And also in Europe, the move is much faster than one would expect. Uh, there's much less disagreement among the member states than we had during the GFC or during the Eurozone debt crisis. And I think that surprised me a little bit. And it's good for, for European market. And it's a good change that um, has taken place. Sorry, Andre, just, just picking up on that one. If you'd, if you'd thought in 2011 that the ECB could be sufficiently coordinated, that it could corral all of Europe's governments and get them to agree to the kind of intervention that we saw so, so rapidly. I think only the most bullish of market commentators would have predicted that it could do what it did. Clearly, the Bank of Japan has done taken action very rapidly in the past. Bank of England um, during the financial crisis was very fast in movement and the, and the scale of what the Fed did during the financial crisis in terms of TARP and TALF was immense. But the ECB had always, we'd always had question marks about whether they'd be able to get there, whether there'd be the political will to do this. But the ECB definitely gave it everything that they could. And their starting point was actually harder than the Fed's because they were already at negative interest rates. So they needed to be creative. And actually that, that caught the market by surprise that they weren't cutting rates further, but then the action definitely appears to have been very, very helpful for stabilization in terms of Europe. And I know you're going to pick that up in part two, but for me, that was one of the big shocks. Yes, uh, indeed. But we have to keep in mind that they were their hands were forced 
I would say, by the, for example, the amount of fallen angels that were at risk in the market. The triple B universe, as you know, have grown really fast from two to five trillion over the past, say, five years, while high yield stayed unchanged at roughly two trillion. And I think that, again, the central banks listen to the, to the market, particularly the Fed. When you think about them moving from their announcement of just supporting the front end of investment grade curves, where they saw the dislocation in the market, to also including fallen angels uh, in that, I think is a, a case in point uh, around uh, the power that the market has over uh, central banks. And on fallen angels, I think when we're talking about things that surprised me, is the fact that we had multiple index providers deciding not to rebalance in March. Uh, because, and we had to accumulate two months of fallen angels for March and basically February um, and March to and give central banks some more time to respond before the investment grade community has to crystallize the loss. Because as you know, Jacko, when you're investing in investment grade, the only real possibility of default is if you have a fraud. So the, the main way you lose money is when something falls out of the index and you crystallize that um, and if you have to sell it. And that's uh, one of the bigger uh, risks for those that have less uh, flexibility. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that on reflection, the rating agencies definitely, definitely didn't want to be accused of not moving fast enough this time around. I think they saw this crisis starting to play out and they looked at the criticism that they'd received during the financial crisis where they were broadly lambasted for not being rapid enough in terms of their downgrades. And they just, you know, pretty much downgraded everything that they could look at and say is potentially high yield. Now, one might then subsequently uh, describe their action as, as overly uh, um, conservative. But I think that the speed of that action really caught some of those index providers and investors by surprise when contrasted to you know, what we've seen previously. Um, most of those names continue to inhabit that high yield universe, so they haven't bounced back. So maybe the rating agencies will tell you that they're right. Um, but I would be interested to see how quickly they react in terms of bringing ratings back up again. And that might be another rebalancing problem in the opposite direction, uh, but definitely challenging for those index providers and investors who are seeing the number of uh, names that move from triple B down to double B. Um, what impact did that have on you in, in terms of the way in which you were looking at the universe during that period? And I guess we're going to come to that in part two in terms of what high yield now looks like. What happened? What, what what were the implications of that during the depths of the crisis for you? Absolutely, I think the rating agencies were very quick uh, to downgrade. And going back to my experience, uh, for example, the most recent experience in 2015 and 16 in the commodity bust, they definitely were too late to downgrade and then had to upgrade multiple notches very soon after when the market uh, has actually uh, bounced. But as you know, Jacko, for us. We invest across the capital structure. We don't really have limits in terms of the amount of high yield we can 
hold and the amount of investment grade we can hold. And also our analyst team is structured in terms of sectors, not in terms of regions or credit quality. So all of those big names within the investment grade space, we already knew them quite well. And whereas it might have taken some people time to bring them to investment committee and realize that compared to the other things within the high yield universe, those fallen angels are looking actually not that bad. They are big companies. They have public equity. They have better disclosure. They have proper boards in place. They are more grown up uh, companies as investment grade companies tend to be. And they also have more securities to play with. They have more liquid capital structures. And this is what you want in times of uncertainty. You want some liquidity. Okay, so let's close with the final question in part one. What's changed in the market since last year um, as a result of the crisis? What are the big takeaways in terms of what's changed? In general, in terms of for asset allocators, I think credit again uh, came into the center of attention because you need reliable income. There's lack of dividends in the market. And again, there's high percentage of negative yielding assets with big uh, convergence in interest rates, particularly uh, US and the rest of the world. And at the same time, given the type of volatility that we have experienced just this year, there's a lot of focus on downside protection. But turning to market for high yield, like you've mentioned, there are a few good things uh, that have happened. I think it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise. So the market has been stagnant uh, for the past five years, and now we've had a growth of 8 to 10% uh, this year, which over five years is not that bad. If you remember, a lot of the more uh, levered transactions and the more aggressive transaction actually went to the level own market uh, over the past five years, maybe not over the past year and a half, but definitely uh, before that. The asset class is now more large cap. There are more securities. The average quality of the asset class for the first time is double B, and there's more liquidity as a result. And I think this increased the interest for the asset class. And I urge Again, everyone to read a uh, uh, note we published, uh, Coupons are King, that goes into more detail on that. For investment grade, investment grade is now more of a tool of central banks to keep the funding rates lower as they moved from keeping the rates low in the funding market from banks in the uh, government bond space, but also they moved on to the corporate space now. And that, this is definitely the case in, in Europe whereas there's less support in the US. And again, more focus on downside protection. And with that, a little bit of a breakdown in the rates market in March, I think more investors are looking at options. I think it's hard to have a podcast and not mention ESG uh, when you work at uh, Federated Hermes. And I think there have been some good developments from ESG side. Talking to our engagers, uh, there's better access to companies. It's harder for companies to find an excuse not to talk with you when you don't need to travel. It's very efficient and you can uh, get more engagement done. So I think that's a good one. And if we think about the ES and G of it, there's definitely bigger focus on climate change. 
And the weak oil performance this year only is strengthening the case for bigger premium in that part of the market and is intensifying the discussions. As, as you know, the unfortunate outcome of the COVID-19 is an unprecedented unemployment and the structural changes that are happening across many industry, industries. And this requires attention of the boards. And I think slowly companies will have to move to having a more holistic approach in terms of how they manage the company with moving away from just focusing on dividends to thinking about uh, employees, uh, supply chain, and other stakeholders as well. Governance. Governance has always been a big thing in the ESNG. And unsurprisingly, in tough economic times is where governance issues uh, surface. This is when fraud, accounting frauds come to light because it's much harder to, to hide them. And this is when you can really assess how the board and the management work together in times of crisis. And I think those are all good developments given the, the type of uh, environment we are in. Great, Andre. Um, so if I can just summarize uh, some of that, um, ESG has become more focused. I think that's been helped my, my, myself. I think that's been helped by the tremendous performance of ESG active funds and sustainable funds through this period. Um, the path of interest rates uh, is clearer, particularly in the US. Um, and I think that people are naturally more worried about deflation than they are inflation, than you know, comparing and contrasting a year ago to now. And I think you're right to point out the lack of income available to many investors. And I think that's something that we'll pick up in part two. So that's uh, where we'll stop part one. Thank you very much, uh, listeners, for joining us. In part two, we'll talk about our forward-looking views in terms of fixed income. Having looked back over the last 12 months, what do the next 12 months look like? We'll be staring in Andre's crystal ball. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.